This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Dean Street. Um, my name is Jeff Sullivan, and I'm a pastor here, and I'm happy to be able to uh, just share this great passage of Scripture with you. I have too many microphones. Um, so let's clear that one out. Now, in this passage of Scripture, we do have a lot of deep teaching that we're going to uncover. And so we're going to walk through that. So in order to do that, I'm going to be a little bit of a professor today. And we're going to use a whiteboard because that makes me smarter. Anytime you write on a whiteboard, it's legitimate. Uh, so we're going to use that today. And I hope that works out great for everyone. Now, in this passage... The first question that pops out to me that I feel like we have to address is when Jesus says, it's better for me to go away and then the spirit will come. Now, can you imagine being a disciple at that time when Jesus says, it's better for me to go away? Their whole life surrounded around him. Everything they did, they left their houses, they left everything, and they were following him for years. He was their teacher, he was their miracle worker. They finally believed that he was God and that he was everything. And now he's telling them he's going to go away. And he's going to tell them, well, it's actually better that I go away. Can you imagine being in that spot? That here you have the presence of Jesus with you all the time. And he says, it's better if I leave. Now, for us to understand how to answer that, we are going to look at it in two parts, all right? So Jesus was God in the flesh. It was very important that Jesus, that God came to earth in the form of a man. Because without that, then God would simply be something out there. Like so many other religions or mythologies that talk about a God or gods or creators or things or spirits or presence that are beyond our world, that somehow inter intersect in our world, but always in ways that are unexplainable, unmeasurable. So God decided in order to reveal his relationship and his reality to us that he would become a man on earth. And so Jesus became flesh and flesh is real. Jesus had weaknesses in the sense that his body had limitations. There was times when he was sad. There was times when he was weak. There was times when he was hungry. There were all these flesh things that we could understand. Jesus, he had those. And he lived in those. And so John 1.14, John 1.14, John says, in the beginning, or John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. So he speaks of God being uh, the creator, the beginning from all time. But then John 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only one, full of grace and truth. And so the existence of Jesus brought God from a plane that's high above, that, that's there, it's spiritual, it's out there. And now he existed on earth and he lived in a way that we could know, that we could validate, that we could verify. And so God thought it important for us to know that God is there and that he wants a relationship with us, that he would come to earth as a man and live. And so he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Now, a limitation that comes from this is that Jesus was born at a certain place, right? 
He was born in Bethlehem, in Israel, in a certain section of the world. He wasn't born in America. He wasn't born in the Far East. He wasn't born in Europe. He was born in a certain place. And so there was limitation to that. The rest of the world didn't see him. They saw him. He was born at a certain time. He was born over 2,000 years ago. He reset our calendar through that, our faith in him and his existence. And so he was born then. He wasn't born now. He doesn't go to our church. You haven't met him on the street. He was born 2,000 years ago. And so there was a limitation of time. There were only certain people who would be able to meet and see him. There was a limitation of geography. There was a certain place that he was. And so God limited his time and space to a certain time so that there could be eyewitness account of his existence. Because Jesus was on earth, there's documentation of his life. Because he did meet people and do things and create miracles and raise the dead, there were people who could witness that and attest to the power of God existing in him. And because he was there, he could speak words and words could be recorded and remembered because they could see the person saying it and then he could validate that he is real. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us a solid foundation to take what is spiritual and what is beyond us and place it into our world and say, okay, this is God, this is his heart, this is who he is. And so it was necessary for Jesus to become flesh and dwell among us so that we could behold his glory that's full of grace and truth. But because of those limitations, there had to be something more. So the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is the eternal an ever-present spirit of God. It's nice that the word spirit is in there. So that's easy to remember, right? The spirit of God could be everywhere. Right now, the spirit of God is with us here. But also in every church across the world that professes the name of Jesus and follows him, the spirit of God is there. He's not just here with us, he's here with them. And it's not just now. This isn't the golden age of God's movement. There's been time all over in the past and there will be in the future where the spirit of God is there because God doesn't have to exist within our concept of time and space because he's the creator of it. So these concepts of the Holy Spirit being everywhere in the spirit makes him beyond just the simple things that we could uh, create or manufacture or understand or even record. And so John, once again, in chapter 4, verse 24, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman at a well. And it gets into a little bit of a theological debate because she says, look, I worship here, you worship there. These are two different geographical locations. They can't be the same God. Because how could he be here and how could he be there? And Jesus says in John 4, 24, that God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the spiritual element of our faith with God is vital and necessary. Because God is a spirit. He's beyond these physical things that we can uh, touch and understand and experience. So he's much more than that. But notice each of these connected to truth. Jesus in the flesh was full of grace and truth. When you worship in spirit, you worship in spirit and truth. So there's this constant overlap of what is real 
and truth. Now, an image that might help uh, us understand or us see that would be sometimes we view life in like a flat earth mentality. And that's a two-dimensional mentality, a flat world. Like this, like this board here. This board is flat and I can present information on it and it has height and width, but it has no depth. So anything on this board is just gonna be two-dimensional. So I can take this marker and I can put it in this world and if I trace it, This marker is a rectangle. And so in this two-dimensional mindset, markers are rectangles. Now, the same marker, I can place it this way in this two-dimensional world, trace it. Markers are circles. In a two-dimensional world, markers are simply circles. Now you debate for the rest of your life. Are markers rectangles or are markers circles? And you can have facts on both sides and you can argue both sides and you're both right, but both are also wrong because it's incomplete. For centuries, people were trying to figure out, is Jesus God or is Jesus man? At what point did he become God? Or was there a time where he stopped being man? And, and they were working from this limited viewpoint of was Jesus man or God? And they were trying to figure it out. Like so many things we do, when we look at it as an either or, because we're looking at it from a limited view. But in actuality, a marker is both rectangular and circular, and it's much more. There's a reality to it, there's a depth to it. And so that is the way God is. God is both physical and spiritual. God is a spirit and he works in everything in our physical world. And so it's not just an either or with God, it is a both and. He is full of truth. There is a depth to our relationship with God. And so we move from a 2D perspective of things into a three-dimensional view. And that is how we can see that it is better for Jesus to go away and the spirit comes because now we can experience the full reality of God present wherever you are. You don't have to be in a single place or meet a single person or do a single thing. God is everywhere. But he's fully everywhere, and we could fully understand him. And so, when we think of the Spirit in this way, we have to see, so what does the Holy Spirit do? And Jesus teaches us a great thing in this passage about that. What does the Holy Spirit do? His work first begins by lighting a flame of faith for those who do not believe. The Holy Spirit began his work in your life before you ever believed in Christ. And here's how he does that. Jesus describes it. He, he really makes a sermon outline for us in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. He says, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He makes three points. Nine, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Ten, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. And 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So when Jesus lays out this teaching of the Holy Spirit working in us before we understand God, it reminds me of a conversation he had in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Nicodemus 
was a successfully self-righteous person. He had done all good that you could possibly do to deserve salvation. In fact, I'm certain he was a way better person than I am. And most of us could agree that he was probably a better person than you in the sense that he had followed more religious rules than we would ever follow. He had committed himself to a higher level of purity and dedication than many of us could ever commit to. He had followed and learned so much Bible than that, more than I ever learned. He was able to do so much more. His righteousness as far as what would look like to the public, his reputation and his goodness would exceed all of us. And yet he's sitting there with Jesus and he says, how do I inherit the kingdom? How do I get that? Jesus tells him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You must be born again. So even this man who had done so much good and had such a reputation and was so religious, Jesus had to let him know that he did not have a relationship with God until the Spirit had awakened it in him. He says, you must be born of the Spirit. And it confused him. He says, how can a man be born when he's done? And he goes into this whole thing to try to explain it. And that explanation leads up to a section of verses that I know you know very well. You see, that conversation began in John chapter 3, verses 1, and then it's in verse 4 and 5 that he says you have to be born of the Spirit and be born again. But in John 3, 16, what does he tell him? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So he speaks to the incarnation of Christ to come as a sacrifice. And he makes it an open invitation to whosoever, not just to Nicodemus, a great man, but if anyone would believe, they would have eternal life. And here in John 16, verse 9, he says, he is convicting the world of sin because they have not believed in me. Now, John three sixteen, I probably use it in almost every sermon because it's such a wonderful thing. To be able to grasp onto that idea that God loves you so much that he has already prepared your salvation and given it to you as a gift, you just receive it, it's the greatest thing. But we wouldn't know or love John 3.16 the way that we do if it wasn't for John 17, 18, and 19. You see, John 3.16 doesn't float alone in a conversation. It's a part of an entire evening that he is sitting with Nicodemus to teach him about. And John 17, 18, and 19 give us the reason to love John 3, 16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, sometimes we get that flipped. Sometimes we feel like that when someone exposes light to our sin, that they're the problem. Sometimes we feel like the idea of Jesus and what he taught about purity and righteousness means that he is the problem because he's now shackling us with shame and guilt over the things we are and the things we do. But what he's saying is, look, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. And verse 18, for whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people, I don't think those people think we people. We're all people. And people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. In order to love a savior, I have to realize I needed to be saved. And that starting point is what really grows that appreciation for the mercy of God and the love of God and the fact that Jesus would die on the cross. If not, if I don't need a savior, it doesn't really make a lot of sense that he would need to sacrifice. And so when light shines on that idea that I am a sinner, it's very uncomfortable. None of us like to be convicted of sin, do we? We're defensive of it. We're avoiding. We would like to think that I'm good enough. It's the other people that have problems, right? But Jesus says the Holy Spirit comes to us to convict us of our sin so that we might come to a Savior. Now, I was speaking with a young lady, and she had been in the church. She grew up in the church. And now she was at a point in her life where she had kind of deconstructed that and had walked away from it and was now reconstructing kind of what a new faith that she believed in. She's like, I, I believe in, in Jesus because he said, love your neighbor. And I believe that God is love. And so I think that that is really what it's all about. And so she was creating a new religion for her to accept and to embrace that really only was an idea of love. In her mind, love meant that then you would not recognize sin. You would just say love. But understand what Jesus says love is. Love isn't ignoring sin or covering it, but love is redeeming it and forgiving it. And you can't redeem and forgive something that you ignore exists. And so we come to the place where light is shed on our life to realize that we are sinners that need a savior. And there's not a certain person who needs it. It's all people. Now, when you join the church here, there's, a, there's these vows or these affirmations really is a better word maybe that you take. If you guys have ever witnessed that, if you've ever gone through that, uh, they're very interesting. They're written a while back, so they sound really smart and they're great words. It's great theology and depth to it. But I want you to think a little bit about what we say when we say these things. It says, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God? justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. That's a negative place to begin, isn't it? To admit that you're a sinner and that you're hopeless without Jesus. Do you know, we push back from that. But God says that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. It is when we're able to come to that conviction to realize I'm a sinner and I need a savior that the spirit is able to fully open ourselves to receive Jesus. 
to receive the fact that his righteousness is taking the place of my sin, that it's his goodness that is overshadowing all of me and it's his love and mercy that will bring me into heaven with him. The second affirmation you make says, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of God and savior of sinners? So we're affirming, I'm a sinner, I need a savior and Jesus has done that. And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Exactly what John 3:16 walked us through. Now the third affirmation that you would make is do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you endeavor to live as become followers of Christ? And that leads us into the second work of the Holy Spirit. First, he becomes the flame of faith in our life as unbelievers. He's the one who awakens our soul to know that I'm a sinner who needs a savior and Jesus is that savior to receive me. Now the Holy Spirit is the guiding light. He is the one who guides me in this life into the way that I should go. Because this world is full of lies, right? We need a guide. We need the spirit of truth. It doesn't matter how much, uh, what part, like I'm only on like very limited, like LinkedIn as my social media. It doesn't matter how much you're a part of. It doesn't matter what. You swim in the atmosphere of the world of lies. You're surrounded constantly through digital media and other things, just everywhere you go. It's the atmosphere we breathe. It's the thing we sin. Now, Here's a picture that I think is a great example for us to understand. Now, great dog here, right? So one day I have to to log into my government email through Microsoft, which I never use that, but that's what I do. And when you open Microsoft, you get bombarded with like a homepage of like 20 articles that are flashing as quick as you can get them. And then there was this great one here. Now, I don't know why they choose me, what the algorithm says, oh, this guy has a dog, I don't know what. But this is the story of a man in Japan who wanted to be a dog and he purchased the most realistic dog suit you could possibly buy for $14,000. And that is a man being walked by a lady on the streets dressed as a dog. I hope all of you got that and it wasn't just targeted at me. (laughs) Because I'm like, What do you do with this information? This is a world of lies, isn't it? This whole thing is messed up. Think about that. No, keep the picture. Drill it into their brains, Gabby. I want them to feel what I feel. All right? Now, just imagine what that is like. First of all, it may not be real at all, correct? All right? Maybe some chatbots making like articles to throw into uh, my homepage as I log on to emails to try to get me to click on something. And they're like, well, he has a dog. He'll click on it. Or they're like, well, he's like goes to a church. He'll probably be angry about this in some way. Let's get him. And so they'll like, you know, try to get you to click on it. And I had to click on it so that it could be in the sermon. All right? And so that's how we worked on that. And so it may not even be real. Who knows, right? Who knows? There's a bunch of lies. But what if it is? That's still a lie. This guy wants to be a dog and he dresses up. Can you imagine if a kid goes to pet that dog, the trauma they're going to have the rest of their life to find out that that dog is a man? Are all dogs men? What is going on here? I don't know what to do, right? 
We live in a world of lies. It's something has to guide us in truth. Now, this picture also might help you with that. All right? This is my headshot. Now, lucky for me, my wife is an amazing photographer, and she can take a headshot of me. And uh, this is not brand new, in case you noticed. It's a few years old. And then also, there's some things that you can do that uh, my wife is especially gifted at. We can kind of edit what goes on right here. So I can lose 15 pounds by a simple click and look nice and tight. No double chin, no loose chin. She can even bring hair down the forehead a little. Not too much. I don't want to look like I'm wearing a toupee, but let's give it a little help. And then, you know, you can kind of like clear out some wrinkles and blemishes and then boom. I have kept that as my profile for everything. It was even part of the website at Granada until Tatiana said, it's not real. You don't look like that. <laughs> and she made me get a new one that's up to date and shows how old I am and everything is the worst. And so even though this is true, right, that is a picture of me, but it's a little inauthentic to the reality of who I actually am to what I'm portraying to anyone I can trick by my profile, right? Because we live in a world of lies, and some of them are blatant and aggressive and destructive. Some of them are just trying to put your best step forward so people don't know what really goes on in your life, and you can look good as you can look and be the best you can be. But we need the Holy Spirit to guide us in truth. Because we live in this world, we're surrounded, you can't escape it. You can't turn everything off and not see it and not know it. You have many guardrails, and I advise you to limit everything you could limit. But this is still a world of lies and we need truth. And so verse 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So that's a confidence we have in God, that we could do that. He is a guiding light of truth for believers. And this is a continuous work of the Holy Spirit to take us through that. Now, I want to continue more on this idea of truth for us. Worth gave me a book to read, and I read it. So that's why I'm smart now. <laughs> Thanks, Worth. This book is called Total Truth by Nancy C and Nancy Piercy. Smart lady. And what she is presenting to us is the idea that Christians, those in the church, those of us who have bought into our faith, have also bought into an idea of this dichotomy of truth. Where... We have separated life into two parts, okay? Much like we were talking about, we've got, in our flat world, we've got this rectangular side, which is, you know, rectangles are right angles, there's certainty, it's foundational, it's a block, it's something, you know, these are facts, these are true, these are real. And then you've got this circular side of life, and these are, you know, these are the feelings. The circle is a big hug. And you don't know where it starts or ends. These are ideas and these are things like that. And so they might not be true, but they're what you enjoy. They're your preferences and you like them. And so we begin to divide our world in this way. And so science, believe in science, right? It's the new big God and religion of our day. If it's science, it's real. But if it's faith, well, 
That's something you can choose to have or not have. That's a preference of life. What do you believe in? Good for you. What do you believe in? Good for you. But science is foundational and true. Faith is optional and preferential. Then, think of knowledge or education. Okay? If something is in a textbook or an institution or is taught in some way, now it is affirmed as true and it's a fact. But values, those are based on your experience. I almost spelled values wrong. Those are based on your experience or maybe your culture or maybe where your family was like. And, and so these things are, are flexible and they're adoptable or they're deniable. They're yours. They're your values. You pick them. And you see there's this conflict of what is true and then what is preference. So economy, right? Everyone knows business. You've got to make money. You've got to make more than you spend. You've got to make as much as you can. And, and there's an economy of life and there's a way that you have to be. But charity, well, that's if you want to feel good about something. You can give some somebody something and you feel good about it and it's kind of like a separate thing not a part of your overall financial world but a, but a little pocket and so as Christians what we've begun to do is we've adopted the viewpoint that the world would have on all things except for faith so Monday through Saturday we're all in. We're the same. There's no difference. But Sunday, and I don't mean every Sunday, right? I mean, but on Sunday, a couple hours of worship, of gathering, to just kind of reset the soul and then move back on to my Saturday through Monday person. We've created a dichotomy of what it means to follow Christ. And we've separated it instead of a holistic view of the gospel being part of everything you do how does the gospel influence your work whatever your work is in an office in a job in a, in a an activity in the field in an education room in, in whatever work that you have do you know how it is that your faith influences your work when you take your own finances do you feel that God is in your finances and that you think of how you use and spend and make your money in a way that you say, well, I'm a steward of God's things. What am I, should I do with it? When you form your values of what you say and what you do, and when you gain information and education and you absorb things from all over the place, are you filtering it through something that sees a light of truth from the Holy Spirit? Because real truth is of the Spirit. It's not either the rectangle or the circle, but it is something that's alive and it is both. It's a third dimension of life in which things are both rectangular and circular because they have body and they have life. And when you have committed to follow Christ, the Holy Spirit takes you away from this either or mentality of am I at church now and am I a disciple now and am I here now and then it takes away all those separations of life and it combines it together and says it's both the spirit guides us into truth it says into all the truth 
So, discipleship was never meant to be either or. It's the reality that God is fully present with us in all areas of our life. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that your word is truth and that we don't have to create our own. But because your son came and died for us, we have a righteousness that is not our own, which is a gift from you. Because your spirit validated that through the word of God, through eyewitnesses carrying your message from that day in history until the day now, awakening in us a faith, awakening us a desire to pursue you, we have a firm foundation, God, of who you really are and what you really want from us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would convict us of our sin. We all stand before you as sinners. Not that we would point to other people's sin, but only kneel for our own. Lord, that you might lift us up with your grace and mercy and send us into your mission in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. We have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, and it's a great day for that because here is this 